From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Visit them on the web at www.dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am co-host of Connecting with Walt, Craig Williams. And once again, I am not joined by our host, Michael Bowling, because he is still on his path to recovery. But I feel like for... Even though I've delivered some good news sprinkled with some bad news here the past couple weeks, I feel like for the the first time I can truly deliver really great news and that I finally had a chance to talk to Michael on the telephone. So uh, I have now heard his voice for the first time since I I guess it would have been a week before we recorded our our final episode that we released with him in it. Uh, that would that would have been the last time I had heard his voice. So it was over a month in that that time span but i finally got a chance to hear him now that he's at home and recovering and you know what for for a person who was in the hospital for 17 days and went through everything that he was going through which i'm not going to get into detail he'll he'll probably share about it share all about it at some point in time uh, but i'll let him be the one to uh, choose what he wants to say about it and what he doesn't but he sounded he sounded really good for what he's been going through and uh, you know it's he's still not quite back ready to to be on the show yet so i know i know our short little conversation was probably hard enough for him uh, just to to kind of muster through it but uh, i think i think soon we're gonna try to even uh i'll, I'll try to skype him in and just uh, record his audio so he can send you all a little message but uh, ultimately michael did want to say that he has been receiving all of your messages uh, just just like i've been promising you that he's been receiving and looking at them all he said he has in fact doing them everything that's coming through on email social media all of it and the fact is he's just blown away by how many positive messages has been coming in from people who have never reached out to him before have never met him in person but but just wanted to let him know how much uh they they appreciated him and they were thinking and praying for him and it it literally meant the world to him and it still means the world so uh, at the end of the episode i'm going to give you all of his contact information uh, like we do every single week with it but uh, please 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 keep sending michael encouraging messages if you can on on social media or by emailing him michael at wdwinfo.com he said that he he hopes to one day be able to respond to every single one of them personally he knows that that would take a very very, very, very long time because of the volume that he he did receive. So uh, it, it could take a very, very long time. Something that he'll 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 struggle with for years. But he really wants to do that, and it just it really means so much to him. So thank you to everyone out there for for keeping him in your thoughts and prayers, and and hopefully you won't have to hear me do this and a little bit down the road here now, and and it'll be back to our normal shows with with him taking uh, most of the talking duties over. But uh, with that being said, we do still have another throwback archive episode for you from our 60 years of Disneyland series that originated over on the, the Disneyland edition of the Diz Unplugged, that podcast. Uh, we've already been cranking through a couple of these episodes. Uh, we, we launched this whole series with, uh, not this we didn't launch it here but when i needed to start pulling archive episodes i started from the beginning of this series about disneyland uh with with walt's idea for disneyland that was the first episode then the second episode we moved on to building the magic and the third episode that was released last week was all about the opening day at disneyland and in this episode it's actually going to be about the first year of disneyland so we're just going in that order and yes i'm sure most of you have been listening to all of them uh, but i just wanted to go over which ones had been released currently so that way you didn't miss one in between because it really is a a pretty cohesive story that michael 
weaved together. So uh, you're you're doing yourself justice, injustice, I should say, if you don't listen to them all in order and you just pick and choose. But hey, if you remember it from when it was originally on the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition, then I guess I can't I can't uh, really really be mad at you for that for skipping around and such but yes this week we're going to have the episode all about the first year at disneyland another great episode from the archive so we're going to go ahead and play that now in 257 working days they built disneyland Despite the apparent success of Disneyland on its opening day celebration on July 17, 1955, the next morning's newspaper reviews were highly critical of Walt Disney and his newborn park. They accused him of creating long lines and high prices by trying to recoup his entire investment in the first year. Although Walt Disney had become used to the sting of critics over the years, he was frustrated by the lack of appreciation for his struggling young park. A United Press writer cornered Walt on a second trip to see if any changes had been made. He discovered more drinking fountains and all but one of the attractions finally in working order. But then he asked about the park's prices and he touched off a Walt Disney who was finally tiring of the commercial rap. We have to charge what we do because this park costs a lot to build and maintain. I have no government subsidy. Subsidy. The public is my subsidy, Walt argued. I mortgaged everything I own and put it in jeopardy for this park. Commercial. How have I stayed in business all my life? The critics must know a newspaper exists on advertising. They're crazy. We have a lot of free things in the park. No other place has as high a quality. I stand here in the park and talk to people. It's a most gratifying thing. All I've got from the public is thank yous. In fact, no one was more sensitive or sympathetic to the needs of the guests than Walt Disney. During the first year, he made countless trips to the park, calling for lengthy and intense walkthroughs with his key personnel. I always keep a practical eye towards its appeal to the public, he said. Learning from the public was a continual process for Walt. Learning the guests' needs, desires, and interests took Walt to Disneyland for many walkthroughs. These often took place late in the day, causing him to remain in the park overnight in his town square apartment above the fire station. More than once, he was awakened at dawn by the sound of jackhammers, in an instant, Walt would be up and out on the street talking to the workmen to grasp the problem being worked on and toss it back to his engineers and designers to solve it quickly. Walt Disney spent a lot of time in the park. He insisted on standing in long lines with paying guests. He could frequently be seen talking with children to gauge their reactions to the park and its attractions. Before he would leave his apartment, Walt would sign a stack of photocards to pass out along his walks. Walt wouldn't let the landscapers fence in the lawns until he first saw where the guests wanted to go. If they often cut across a particular grass area, Walt saw that as a signal that sidewalks needed to be poured in that section. Hmm. Walt also expected his designers to go to Disneyland as often as possible to check the attractions they had worked on said John Hench. He required that we walk through the front gate and stand in line with the guests to listen and watch, to see how they reacted. I don't know of any other design firm that's ever had this privilege. Just one month after the park opened, Mother Nature seemed determined to test Walt's patience. Fifteen degrees of a hundred degree or fifteen days of a hundred degree weather combined with ninety percent humidity do- dove attendance down to a trickle. Sounds like Florida. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Walt was seen out in front of the golden horseshoe, wondering aloud if the paying public would ever come back again. When weekly paychecks were issued, members of the management team were told not to cash theirs until they were certain all the hourly employees' checks were covered by the dwindling bank funds. Wow. 
Many events took place in Disneyland during its first few months to increase public awareness to this new form of Disney entertainment. In Washington, D.C., the park's grand opening was announced into the congressional record by the Honorable James B. Utt of California during a session of the House of Representatives. A constant stream of celebrities and Hollywood stars, including Groucho Marx, Kirk Douglas, Frank Sinatra, Walter Pidgeon, Roy Rogers, Benny Goodman, and the 1955 Cleveland Indians made well-publicized visits to the park. In September, Fess Parker acted as personal guide around the park for Vice President Richard Nixon and his family. Disneyland celebrated a series of highly publicized shop and restaurant grand openings. The new Red Wagon Inn gave out free copies of the 1956 Souvenir Guide. Merlin's Magic Shop offered free Swiss Warbler bird calls. And there were free Fritos with every dish at the Frito House in (laughs) Frontierland. Actress Dorothy Lemoore was on hand to break a bottle of Mississippi River water over Lafitte's ancient anchor when it was dedicated in a New Orleans section of Frontierland. When the new Frito House and the Aunt Jemima Kitchen were opened together in New Orleans area of Frontierland, both Aunt Jemima and the Frito Kid arrived in a stagecoach during the ceremony as the Dixieland band played when the saints come marching in. A list of Disneyland entertainments expanded, and visitors found a continuing variety of free attractions as exhibits and displays became prominent within Main Street storefronts and around the park. Parents could photograph their children posing with Davy Crockett and other Disney characters at the Artist Corner, located at the end of Main Street. Old-time camera and rare photographic equipment were seen in the Eastman Kodak shop. Examples of early medical science and pharmacology were on display in the Upjohn Pharmacy. There were old locks in the Yale and Town Shop and early music machines in the Wurlitzer store. Curious guests could stop by the Site of Future Sites area along a Main Street construction fence where Kodak Stereo 2 viewers were mounted at different heights as if they were peepholes so guests could view three view 3D color slides of a scale model by WED of the proposed International Street, which was to face Town Square. Guests would cross over a scale reproduction of London Bridge, with little barges passing underneath. From there they could visit an English cottage with a water wheel grinding grain, a reproduction of the French Quarter, the Italian area, and a German-Bavarian compound. The rides would have included a taxi cab through Paris and a cog railway traveling up and down the street. International Street would ultimately become the World Showcase in Epcot Center at Walt Disney World. The Red Wagon Inn hosted a Disney Arts ex- Artists exhibit, display of oil and watercolor paintings by Disney artists, including Harper Goff, Walter Paragoy, Bill Mahood, and Bruce McIntyre. In Frontierland, the new Davy Crockett Arcade presented Navajo tribal traditions with muslin painting and blanket weaving. Also in the arcade was an area decorated as the Alamo, which showcased a collection of rare pistols, rifles, bowie knives, and trappings of the type once used by Davy Crockett. In late 1955, a major film production display by the Society of Motion Picture Art Directors was sponsored in Tomorrowland. Artwork, photos, and sets from the films like Giant, High Noon, Forbidden Planet, Rear Window, Guys and Dolls, and The Egyptian were shown. Disney productions were represented, including Pinocchio, Song of the South, and Sleeping Beauty, which was in production. Many of the models used in the construction of Disneyland were also placed on view for this exhibit. In the following months, permanent exhibits were opened in cooperation with America's most respected industrial and commercial corporations. American Motors presented the last word in cinematography with their 15-minute Sir Car Rama film. 
Richfield Oil provided a capsule history of Earth's evolution in the world beneath us. Monsanto's Hall of Chemistry and Kaiser Aluminum's Chemitron presented chemical and metallic wonders in Tomorrowland. In April 1956, Frontierland's Mineral Hall opened, allowing guests to see the spectacular rainbow glow room free of charge. Disneyland provided an increasingly complete show by adding many themed performing groups and costume cast members. Beginning on opening day, the Firehouse 5 plus 2 was featured around the park, playing Dixieland Jazz at the Firehouse on Main Street and in the Golden Horseshoe Saloon. The Disneyland band appeared daily in complete uniform, with occasional assistance from their own Keystone Cops saxophone band. In the early days, Disneyland was not populated with the familiar characters from Disney cartoons and films. Roy Disney was very protective of Mickey Mouse and the other major Disney characters, and he did not want them associated with the park if it failed. Secondary characters, oh, okay. yes, secondary characters Tinkerbell and Jiminy Cricket were associated with Disneyland on television and in advertising. People were hired to create characters that embellished and enhanced the themes of each land of the park. Today, they are called streetmosphere characters. Full-blooded Indians, that's in quotes, danced in the Indian village or attacked the Conestoga, wag Conestoga wagons along the trail. In Frontierland, Black Bart held up the Santa Fe and Disneyland steam trains and the horse-drawn stagecoaches and always lost gunfights in front of the Pendleton Woolen Mill with Sheriff Lucky or Town Marshal Wally Bogue. Sheriff, hmm. Sheriff Lucky and Black Bart would also act as greeters and help provide security in Frontierland. Knights and ladies in medieval regalia performed their Fantasyland Pavane, whilst one, the one-legged Captain Guy Exxon and his pirate Paco could be found at the Chicken of the Sea Pirate Ship Restaurant. Tomorrowland had Spaceman K-7. The costume was oversized, very heavy and very hot. The actor had his head inside a plexiglass helmet with only a small hole for ventilation. There was a rumor that he was very popular because he kept a transistor radio inside this suit and updated guests on the latest summer baseball scores. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. He was frequently joined by Space Girl. The most well-known Disneyland character was Trinidad Ruiz, Ruiz, the street sweeper with a broom, push cart, broad white mustache, spotless white costume, and tall white hat. He was known as the most photographed man on Main Street. Trinidad was a turn-of-the-century white wing who swept up after the horses that made their way up and down Main Street. Also on Main Street was Disneyland's organ grinder, Sam Ayeza, who cranked out My Wild Irish Rose whilst his ring-tailed monkey, Josephine, tipped her hat. By the time that hectic summer had turned into winter, most of the problems had been worked through. Many of the critics were placated, and the word was out that Walt had everything running smoothly. Now everyone wanted to be a part of Disneyland. Walt and his staff at WED were inundated with ideas for new attractions. Offers to sell prized possessions that would be perfect for Disneyland poured in. People offered everything from a giant steam calliope to a trained rabbit named Junior. It was a full-time job just to say no thank you. <laughs> Public interest in Disneyland was reaching phenomenal levels. Families from every state were piling into their cars and spending their vacations driving across the country to visit the park that was born on television. We had an appointment with Walt for dinner one time, John Hinch recalled, and he came in a little late. As usual, he'd been strolling around in the crowds at the park. When he came in, he smiled and said, There's a lot of happy people out there. I saw a lot of happy faces. Most likely, the happiest face of all was Walt's. Hmm. One major problem 
became apparent quickly. When the park opened, each guest bought a general admission ticket at the main gate and individual tickets for each attraction. The constant reaching into the pocket gave many families the impression Disneyland was an expensive place to visit. Soon, the most creative ticket system of all time was put into use. The most popular attractions, like the Jungle Cruise and the Mark Twain, were plagued with long lines. Disneyland officials were perplexed by their inability to get the crowds to try out the smaller attractions, which had short or no lines. This problem led to the creation of the famous Disneyland Ticket Book. Initial surveys had shown the average dollar spent per person was, get this, $2.66. Oh my gosh. <laughs> On October 11th, 1955, the park made available the Day at Disneyland Ticket Book at $2.50 for adults and included one general admission and eight attraction coupons in three price categories, A through C. The ticket categories reflected the prestige or cost of an attraction. The books rated the attractions from least expensive A, such as a ride on a Main Street vehicle, to C, which allowed you to board the Jungle Cruise. Once guests started finding A and B tickets in their pockets, having paid for them up front, they were more willing to investigate the smaller attractions. The ticket books had many benefits. They helped distribute guests throughout the park, helped in forecasting attraction capacity, and gave cast members an opportunity to interact with guests as they passed over their tickets. The idea worked far beyond anyone's expectations, and the popularity of the ticket book grew dramatically in the years ahead. For many young Disneyland guests, the coupons became their first standard for bartering in their neighborhoods as they saved and traded their coupons from past visits, the way earlier generations had collected baseball cards. One of the first attraction changes was to the Disneyland Railroad. Whilst the attraction was popular and guests were enthusiastic about boarding the passenger train, almost all rejected the freight train. They especially resented being put into the cattle cars, and in protest, guests would bellow and moo like animals as they were herded <laughs> into the cars. <laughs> oh my gosh. The freight train was quickly remodeled as another passenger train. The first summer, the Mark Twain not only ruled as Queen of the River, she was the sole boat on the rivers of America. By the Christmas holidays, the nationwide Davy Crockett craze was in full swing. Davy Crockett's keelboat race had been broadcast on November 16, 1955, and Davy Crockett and the River Pirates on December 14, 1955, as episodes of the Disneyland television show. To take advantage of Davy's sudden popularity, two keelboats actually used in the filming of Davy Crockett and the River Pirates were specially modified to carry guests down the river. The Gully Wumper opened on December 25th, and the Bertha May set sail in May 1956. Ron Dominguez less than fondly remembers playing the role of Mike Fink, always having to lose his jousting contests with hero Davy Crockett by being knocked off his keelboat into the chilly river. Explorers like Davy Crockett weren't the only Frontierland settlers to make their homes at Disneyland. Real live Indians set up camp during the first summer in a tiny village, then migrated the next year to a more spacious village along the shores of the rivers of America. Guests visiting the Indian village were invited to take part in authentic ceremonial dances and could purchase handmade souvenirs at the Indian trading post. That is such a fond memory that I have of going to the Indian village and watching them dance and then participating in the friendship dance. The same for me. I, I love that as a little boy, mm -hmm. going to that. Walt Disney was directly responsible for one of the biggest Disneyland flops. Walt always loved a good circus. 
The work the <laughs> Disney animators put into Dumbo was a work of love and some of the most imaginative animation ever created. Years later, Dumbo's terrifying drunken nightmare, Pink Elephants on Parade, hmm. seemed to come to life when the circus came to Disneyland on November 11, 1955, with the opening of the Mickey Mouse Club Circus, which was scheduled to run for six weeks during the Christmas season. The idea met with opposition from some of Walt's staff. C.V. Wood, vice president and general manager of Disneyland, argued, Walt, you just can't do this. A circus always plays itself. The guy comes to Disneyland to stay around for four hours and see what you've got. He's not going to spend two of those hours at a damn circus. The, this criticism merely made Walt more determined. To gain more support for the idea, he decided the studio would eventually make a film called Toby Tyler or Ten Weeks with a Circus. He then convinced his brother Roy they would need a huge circus tent and old circus wagons he had located so they could be used for the film. Of course, all these items found their way to Disneyland. <laughs> the world's largest striped tent was raised at the far north section of the park, just behind Holiday Hill, which was a pile of dirt left over from the Sleeping Beauty castle moat. The tent was heated and there was a separate fee for the circus. Ads for the one-hour show declared the circus was personally produced by Walt Disney to introduce his Mouseketeers to the public. Members of the Mickey Mouse Club television show performed circus stunts, accompanied by the March of Toys with all the famous Disney characters and Santa Claus, Bob O. the Disneyland Clown, and Serenado the Wonder Horse. The most exciting act was Professor Keller and his feline Fantastics, an exciting and educational experience with 13 of the world's most deadly killers. Joe Fowler remembered opening night as if it were a recurring nightmare. Walt and I were sitting together. The first thing that happened, Owen Pope brought his big pumpkin chariot into the huge circus tent, pulled by six of his most beautiful ponies. One of the wheels caught a large diagonal post that held the big top up and carried it away. I thought, oh no, my God, no. But fortunately, the tent still held up. According to Fowler, things just got worse. One of his staff came running up and said, Joe, the llamas have escaped. <laughs> Excusing himself from Walt, Fowler and his staff chased the llamas along the railroad track, finally recapturing them at the Main Street station. When he returned, Walt told him, Well, Joe, you missed the best part of the show. One of the leading ladies bent down and split her tights. The troubles continued. The circus people were used to drinking and gambling between shows. During the premiere of the circus parade, a black panther grabbed the paw of a neighboring tiger and chewed it off. The oh, my gosh. <laughs> The biggest problem came from the public, which just didn't want to see a circus. The circus left town on January 8th, 1956. C.V. Wood had been right. The big top was a big flop. Joe Fowler said, That was the first time that we learned this lesson. People came to Disneyland to see Disneyland. The area where the circus had been held was prepared for the installation of Junior Utopia. Attractions weren't the only thing Walt was changing. A Billboard magazine article on January 28, 1956 was brief. C.V. Wood was out as vice president and general manager of Disneyland five months before his one-year contract ended and would be replaced by a committee headed by Jack Sayers starting February 1st. C.V. Wood's leadership had been critical in getting Disneyland built. However, he also tried to build a team within the Disneyland organization that was loyal only to him. Walt would never accept that kind of disloyalty. 
Wood left with a healthy parting bonus and would sell himself as the master builder of Disneyland until Walt Disney Productions sued and wanted to prohibit Wood from using that title. Bob Gerwin asked about C.V. Wood said he was clearly a con man and certainly behaved that way. Another of the early problems Walt ran up against was the outside staff he had hired to provide many of the park services in which his own people lacked expertise. Dick Nunes remembered, Walt didn't have an experienced staff at the beginning. He tried to go out and get the best experts in things we knew nothing about. We had outside operators for the parking lot, security, custodial, and even for crowd control. At that time, the food and merchandise people were employed by the lessees who signed operating contracts that provided Disney with much-needed cash. The crowd control employees yelled at the customers. They lasted only one day, according to Nunes. The custodial company's standards were low. The security guards heavy-handed. It was a disaster, Nunes concluded. The only employees who really worked out well were the attraction operators. That's because we hired and trained them ourselves. The others just didn't understand what Walt really wanted. What Walt really wanted were employees with a ready smile and the ability to deal pleasantly with large numbers of people. He quickly replaced most of the outsiders with more of his own staff and trained them in his own Disney University. A new vocabulary was created that replaced traditional amusement park lingo. Paying customers became guests, each one to be treated as a VIP. Employees were dubbed hosts and hostesses. And all members of the entire Disneyland organization, including Walt, were to be addressed by their first names to ensure a casual, relaxed, and friendly atmosphere. Public areas were referred to as on stage, behind the scenes as backstage. Even the term ride was replaced by attraction or adventure after guests said they wanted to go on the Mark Twain or the Jungle Cruise, but they didn't want to go on the rides. The graduates of Disney University quickly fulfilled the standards of excellence for service that Walt had set. The top priority for Jack Sayers and his management team in 1956 was to fix what did not work and add attractions as quickly as possible to absorb the growing crowds. Disneyland launched a $1.5 million expansion program that included new attractions in almost every land. The management team recommended an administration building be built. Walt immediately opposed the idea. I don't want you guys sitting behind desks, he said. I want you out in the park, watching what people are doing and finding out how you can make the place more enjoyable for them. Stand in line with the people, and for God's sake, don't go off the lot to eat like you guys have been doing. You eat in the park and listen to people, he reminded them. The public isn't coming here to see an administration building. The happiest place on earth began its second summer with an additional 40% ride capacity as several major new attractions opened. In Tomorrowland, an area known as the Wenmac Hobbyland, or the Flight Circle, provided a free 20-minute demonstration of flying model planes and fast-moving speedboats within a circular fenced enclosure 200 feet in circumference. Walt Disney had attended a hobby show in Los Angeles and became interested in these working models. Crane's Bathroom of Tomorrow opened and featured the next generation of bathroom fixtures and a laundrette, all done in citrus yellow. The bathroom was equipped with radiant heated floors and a Crane central air conditioning unit. Other displays included a mural depicting the history of sanitation in the home and a teardrop exhibit featuring the dramatic story of valves in the industry. The American Dairy Association updated their opening day exhibit by adding the dairy of the future with cows watching color television whilst milkmen with helicopters on their backs delivered milk. Nearby, the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit, recovered from Davy Jones's movie locker, had been included in Tomorrowland because it represented atomic power submarine activity. 
A ticket booth, new signage, and additional lighting had been installed by January 1956, and this improved the various displays from the film. On view were Aranax's cabin, the completely furnished salon, the diving equipment in the fitting chamber, and the huge squid with its grasping tentacles. The art corner moved out of its temporary tent on Main Street into a permanent shop in Tomorrowland. Guests could purchase original Disney animation cells for, you're going to cry, $3.95, and advertising, no two are alike, a picture which will never have an exact duplicate. That's actually a lot of money, though, in, in relation to what you said the average people were paying $2.66 for the day? I know. So that's actually, a lot of money, three ninety five. anyway. I know, but don't you wish you could go back in time? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> The first new attraction to open was Tomorrowland's Astrojet on March 24th. They provided a thrilling spin through space in the area once occupied by the flag-filled Court of Honor. A movie tradition was added to Main Street, USA. Oversized upcoming attraction posters were put on display so guests would know what to expect in Disneyland. The 36 by 54 inch posters were hand produced, silk screened and printed on high quality heavy paper stock. Some were traditional four color printing, others were more complex with as many as 11 colors. Larger and more stylized than movie posters, they were placed on display in the entrance tunnels leading from the parking area and along the pathway into Tomorrowland. Two complete sets of movie posters were framed and mounted below the train station facing the incoming public. You might remember that from that scene in Saving Mr. Banks. To travel up and down Main Street in style, guests could ride on either the new motorized fire wagon or the new red six-passenger 1930s-style horseless carriage with a fringed canvas top, both designed by Bob Gurr. The horseless carriage became known as the Gurmobile. When one cast member was concerned the car might be vandalized, Walt said, Don't worry about it. Just make them beautiful and you'll appeal to the best side of people. They all have it. All you have to do is bring it out. One major addition Walt considered essential was an aerial tramway between Fantasyland and Tomorrowland, which would provide a spectacular view of Disneyland. Having heard about a potential system in Europe, he sent Joe Fowler to investigate it. Fowler returned on the weekend of the first rain of the rainy season in January 1956. No ordinary rain, it was a deluge. Walt had come to the park with Dick Irvine using surface streets because the freeway system was still incomplete. But they became flooded. That's okay, said Walt. We'll just spend the weekend right here if we have to. They had to. After testing Walt with record heat waves during the summer, Mother Nature was now going to test Walt with record rainfall that overtaxed the total water circulation system of the entire park. The canal boats of the world overflowed. The rivers of America overflowed. It was record-setting seven inches of rain in an area most people think of as a desert. But the weekend served an important purpose, as it gave Walt Disney, Joe Fowler, and Dick Irvine the time together to finalize the plans for the Alpine Tramway across Disneyland. The Skyway to Tomorrowland and the Skyway to Fantasyland, he got two for the price of one there, opened on June 23rd and was the first of its kind in the United States. Walt Disney presided over the dedication ceremony. The stranded cable extended 1,250 feet to connect Tomorrowland and Fantasyland. It was supported by four cross-braced towers. The tallest was 60 feet. The most prominent tower was on Holiday Hill. Publicity stated that the giant aluminum baskets would soar high in the air between these two lands over Holiday Hill and the Tomorrowland Lake. Imagineer Dick Stein designed the 42 spun metal gondolas. Each gondola sat two guests on patio chairs bolted to the floor. <laughs> <laughs> the number of gondolas could vary from 18 to 44, depending upon the need. 
A one-way trip took three and a half minutes. In tribute to the attraction's country of origin, the Fantasyland station was modeled after a Swiss chalet surrounded by a lush alpine garden. The Tomorrowland station was a modern sky station. Rivaling the Disneyland railroad cattle cars for guest dissatisfaction was the Fantasyland Canal Boats of the World, referred to as the Mudbank Ride by Dick Nunes. Hmm. It was intended to be a journey past miniature recreations of the great landmarks of the world, but time and financial constraints prevented its completion. On opening day, the guests cruised past barren shores. The standard joke amongst Fantasyland cast members was, the miniature landscaping is so miniature you can't see it. Oh. There was no such spiel because there was nothing to talk about, and cast members couldn't be heard because of the roar of the outboard motors. In the unlikely event, the boats even kept running. It took almost a year to transform the canal boats of the world into the kind of attraction Walt had originally planned. His early concept for a Lilliputian village populated with miniature animated figures had proven unworkable. So Lilliputian land became storybook land, where guests would ride canal boats past detailed miniature scenes from Walt's classic films. Walt Disney called on all the genius available at the studio to recreate in miniature three-dimensional scenes from the world's great folk tales and enter new worlds of enchantment that he had already presented in motion pictures. The storybook land models were scaled one inch to one foot and were made primarily of plywood covered in fiberglass. Walt wanted the scenes to be designed as if the characters were just out of sight. Miniatures were one of Walt's passions, and he was obsessed with the details. The $200,000 storybook land opened on June 18th. Guests rode in newly designed Dutch canal boats built by Robert Doris Boatworks. The gas outboard motors were replaced with quiet electric motors. There were five different styles of canal boats. Some had teapots on the roofs, others with two tillers, another with miniature stairs. The boats were 16 feet long and guided on rails. The initial fleet of 12 boats soon grew to 14, and they floated in a canal that held 465,000 gallons of water. Bill Martin was responsible for weaving the canal boats and Casey Jr.'s circus train together. According to Harriet Burns, Walt considered the Storybook Land canal boats a placeholder attraction until he could develop something even grander. He said to Harriet, we can do this little ride, and it will be a filler for the moment. Later on, we can take it out and put something else there. Also in Fantasyland, Dumbo's flying elephants had begun their flights in August 1955, and the Mickey Mouse Club Theater opened in September 1955. The initial program consisted of Disney short films, Lambert the Sheepish, Sheepish Lion, Out of Scale, The Big Wash, and Squatter's Rights. The 1956 program included a special 12-minute Technicolor Mickey Mouse Club program, 3D Jamboree, starring the Mouseketeers. Frontierland was the realm which received the most expensive, extensive development in the first year. The Indian village was moved farther out along the river, and a new family area called Magnolia Park opened near Adventureland. Guests could cross the footbridge, turn left along some meandering pathways between flower-filled planters to approach an old-fashioned bandstand where concerts were regularly held. The audience could sit on park benches or in rows of bench seats, which faced the gazebo, or watch the trains of the Santa Fe and Disneyland Railroad steam into Frontierland Station. Around the bend by Fowler's, Har Fowler's Harbor, the new Mike Finn keelboats offered a trip along America's wilderness rivers. From the new Indian village by the river's edge, the Indian war canoes gave explorers a new perspective of the rivers of America. During Disneyland's first year, the island encircled by the rivers of America had been unavailable to guests. Now guests could board a Huck Finn raft and cross over to Tom Sawyer Island with Fort Wilderness overlooking the water 
animals and Indian warriors visible in the forest, and a burning settler's cabin aglow in the distance. There was Lookout Mountain, a suspension bridge that swayed when you crossed it, and mysterious Injun Joe's cave. Walt Disney's last and most complex addition to Frontierland that first year was inspired by his Academy Award-winning film The Living Desert. The Rainbow Cavern's mine train took guests across cactus-studded wastelands, recreating the great open spaces of the American Southwest, at a reported cost of $500,000, it was the most expensive edition. The attraction opened on July 2nd. Harper Goff worked on the original concept, and Bill Martin had begun serious planning immediately after the park opened. Bill Martin had the challenge of integrating the pack mules, stagecoaches, and Conestoga wagons into the same seven acres. For the actual Rainbow Caverns, Walt turned once again to his top animation background artist, Claude Coates, for a little studio magic. Walt had learned about fluorescent dyes that, when added to waterfalls, became brilliantly illuminated through the same black light used in the Fantasyland Dark Rides. So Coates experimented with all six rainbow colors falling side by side in one big wide waterfall. Each color was in a separate trough, he said, but as they hit the bottom, we needed to get them as close together as possible to be believable. But a mathematician who was working at the studio on another project told us that it was statistically impossible that the splash between the colors couldn't be controlled. He said the whole thing would be gray within a week. Coates reported this to Walt Disney, who responded with one raised eyebrow. Well, Claude... It's kind of fun to do the impossible, isn't it? Oh, my gosh. Walt Disney left Coates with the problem, and after weeks of experimenting, Coates, working with John Hench, provided Walt with a solution, an ingenious entanglement of hair-like fibrous material that reduced splashing to nearly nothing. The publicity materials describing guest boarding describe guest boarding a cinder-spouting mine train for a journey around Rainbow Mountain and then passing through Rainbow Desert into beautiful rainbow caverns and fluorescent waters. Guests would then view unusual natural features, such as the underground river with flecks of gold and the stalactite and stalagmite caverns, which featured an unforgettable spectacle of multicolored waterfalls deep inside the mysteries of rainbow caverns. All of this would be presented with the world-famous Disney touch. The Rainbow Caverns mine train was Disneyland's first D-ticket, a D-ticket attraction. Instead of the promised cinder-spouting locomotives, these trains used electric motors powered by batteries in a tender car. The four locomotives were designed by Roger Brogy and painted green with wooden cabs. Walt wanted to use live steam locomotives, but was stopped by Orange County officials, who were not pleased that Walt had three unlicensed steam engines already in the park. <laughs> Apparently, nobody had pulled permits for the two Disneyland Railroad locomotives and the Mark Twain. Each locomotive pulled six ore cars that could seat up to six guests on benches along the sides with a door and a jump seat. Each car had a speaker enabling guests to hear the live narration by either the engineer in the locomotive or the brakeman in the rear. The train traveled more than 1,700 feet on track in a long figure eight, and the ride took seven minutes. The backdrop for the loading area was the little mining town of Rainbow Ridge, a reproduction of a typical California mining town of the gold rush days. Designed by Bill Martin, he used forced perspective to recreate a frontier town with miniature facades for the last change saloon, the El Dorado Hotel, and the Rainbow Ridge Clarion. Lillian Disney was fond of the set, and she could frequently be found walking along the pathway with her husband when they spent the night in the park. The addition of the mine train meant changes to the original Frontierland attractions. The loading areas were arranged so the mine train and Rainbow Ridge were to the east. The pack mules were in the middle, 
and the Rainbow Mountain stagecoaches and Conestoga wagons shared the same loading area, to the west. A trip on the pack mules or the wagons gave a whole different perspective as they traveled over the same terrain as the mine train. With the opening of Rainbow Caverns, the press release said, Walt Disney has brought to a close his Magic Wonderland's first major expansion program only days from completion of the park's first year. The program fulfills Walt's promise for this summer season of more room, more rides for fun. In the summer of 1956, Disneyland was one year old. Fantasyland and the other realms had become as beautiful as the initial Disney artwork had promised. Waterways and pathways had become natural with plantings maintained to the always springtime operating policy of the Disneyland landscape artists. The rivers of America now teemed with watercraft. And the other lands of the Magic Kingdom offered attractions which seemed to fill their borders. Walt Disney, known to the public from his television appearances, was now seen regularly around the park, in the parade down Main Street and aboard his new attractions. Guests on Main Street would often say, Hi, Walt, and he would laugh with them, enjoying the appreciation of his audience. The park celebrated its first anniversary on July 17, 1956, with a cumulative attendance nearing the 4 million mark, making it the largest single private enterprise attraction in the Western Hemisphere. About 41% of the guests had come from outside California, a remarkable achievement at a time when transcontinental travel was difficult. The park claimed that guests from 64 nations had visited that first year. Park visitors had been surveyed several times during the first year, and an impressive 98% responded they would come back to Disneyland in the future. Here was the best of all measures of the Magic Kingdom. In just 12 short months, Walt Disney had quieted his critics, resolved the problems of opening day, and proved his new theme park, Disneyland, would be an unprecedented and continuing success. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So the uh, the next episode to look forward to in this entire series uh, is actually one of one of my favorite episodes, something I love hearing Michael talk about, something I love talking about in general, and that is the Disneyland Hotel. So that's actually a two-parter on the Disneyland Hotel. So lots to look forward to with that, and it just keeps going beyond. And as I've mentioned, I think every single week with this, Michael still hasn't finished the series Disneyland at at 60, uh, despite the fact that we're we're quickly approaching the 65th anniversary of Disneyland here in July. But uh, he he still hasn't finished that series. It's something that we do plan on doing this. I don't think just this year. It'll probably take another year to accomplish as well, too. But uh, this series is still ongoing and, and never ending. And and it's it's something you really, really, really should be looking forward to. But uh, we will get to that in the future. And in the meantime, this would be the, the point of the show where I say, well, unfortunately, we're not doing anything with with trivia, but I'm actually going to do something with trivia this week. So I, I couldn't. I didn't have time to get someone to actually ask trivia questions to and such. So I figured at the very least I would share my favorite trivia moments from each day of the week uh, that that I thought stuck out to me and were were worth mentioning. So I guess uh, we're just going to call this Craig Talks About This Week in Disney History. And we will naturally start with the day that this episode was released. So March 20th, it's uh, my my fun fact from today takes us back to the year 2019. I know very far back, but a really big day in Disney history because this was the day that Disney officially became the owners of 21st Century Fox. I know it doesn't seem like it's been that long, but uh, it's in my opinion, it didn't seem like it was all the way back in March. I thought that happened sometime in, in summer, but uh, according 
According to newspapers and such, it did officially happen on March 20th, 2019. And of course, that deal brought them such classics as The Sound of Music, The Simpsons, Bob's Burger, and Bob's Burgers, sorry, and Beyond. And that uh, is making up a lot of what you'll find on Disney Plus, Hulu, and such. And uh, we can expect so much more in the future. So that is the fun fact for March 20th. Disney officially owns 21st Century Fox. I feel like I really, really waited for that dramatic pause there, and it just did not pay off. So let's move on to March 21st. Uh, This fun fact comes from March 21st, 1952, and that's that the cartoon Two Chips and a Miss was released, the Chippendale cartoon. It's I, I did not do uh, diligent research on it because I believe I know this episode, uh, this this short verbatim, and that is that this is the episode in which uh, which the Chippendale go to the nightclub and they meet Clarice and they they start fighting over her. It's one of my uh, one of my favorite shorts to watch growing up. I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge Chippendale fan, so I would have to include anything involving them in. But this was actually one of my favorite ones. So I kept I always watched it in this. It had to be like an hour long video. I'm not sure if we recorded it off of Disney Channel or if we had an actual VHS for it, but I I think it was called like the Adventures of Chippendale, and it basically just it just blocked a whole bunch of Chippendale cartoons together, and then they also had this uh, they would have cutaways to like Chippendale and Walt's office, and it's I need to try to track that down because I was obsessed with that growing up but that's our march 21st fact that on march 21st 1952 two chips and a miss was released so moving on to march 22nd 1970 i'm not sure if this was actually a a trivia question before in uh as michael and i have gone through and done these over the past couple years but uh it's something that i love bringing up anytime i have the chance to and that's that on March 22nd, 1970, the Wonderful World of Disney presented Disneyland Showtime. And if you are not aware of what this one is, I know we have talked about it before. It is the Wonderful World of Disney episode where the Osmonds were there with Kurt Russell and so many more stars. And uh, it, it the, the big thing is they showed the Haunted Mansion. Uh, I believe probably for like the first time with like showing the ride and stuff on the wonderful world of Disney. So it was a, it was a episode that I used to watch on Disney channel from time to time when they'd, they'd be lucky enough to play it. And uh, it always, it always gave me a kick because when it happened to be on and my dad was around, he would always remind me that he actually remembered watching that when it when it debuted all the way back in 1970. So it's one of those ones where uh, it connected through my family. So it, it makes sense why I liked it because my dad watched it and, and enjoyed it all the way back then too. So that's March 22nd, 1970. Disneyland Showtime was on the wonderful world of Disney. Now, this next one, March 23rd, we're going all the way to 1912, and this is because uh, Werner von Braun was born in Germany, so you might not know who he is unless you were a fan of that uh, that movie in the, the 90s starring... Um, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, October Sky, but uh, or if you're a fan of, of some of the old Disneyland episodes, then you might also know him from that too. But basically, Werner von Braun was a, a space scientist, a, a rocket physicist, and, and he actually ended up helping Disney produce the uh, Man in Space TV episodes that that the reason why I wanted to bring up this trivia fact is that it's actually going to be launching on Disney Plus in April. I want to say the third week or maybe right towards the end of April, uh, they're adding new Disneyland episodes to Disney Plus. I don't know if they're taking any away, but they're definitely adding some. They're adding uh, Man in Space and then I believe Mars and Beyond. So uh, it, it seemed like I had to choose this one just to just to uh, also make it aware that you'll be able to watch it very, very soon if you have Disney Plus. So, or, or you can find it on the, we talk about the Walt Disney Treasure 
Adventures uh, DVD tin sets. There was one called Tomorrowland that compiled the space episodes together. So if you have that, you can watch us on there, too, or coming soon on Disney+. Plus. But yes, March 23rd, 1912, Werner von Braun was born. So moving on to March 24th, 1972, uh, this is a very simple one. I don't need to go on and on and on about it, but Disneyland's version of the Country Jam- Country Bear Jamboree opened in Bear Country, sponsored by Pepsi-Cola. Of course, it followed Walt Disney World, which was a, a opening day attraction, and then the Country Bear Jamboree ran in Disneyland until September 9th, 2001. So that is... Your fun fact for March 24th, 1972, Country Bear Jamboree opened in Bear Country. Now, moving on to March 25th, 1954, uh, this is a very, very big one, and that's Disney was awarded four Oscars at the 1953 Academy Awards. They won Oscars for Toot Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, as well as Bear Country, and then also the Alaskan Eskimo, and then the last one, the fourth one they won for was The Living Desert, so... The reason why I wanted to include this fact was uh, very similar to the one about Man in Space, and it's that you can actually right now sit at home and watch The Living Desert on Disney+. Plus. It is It is available to be streamed on there. I did not check with Bear Country, though, so I want to look that up right now. Nope, only Country Bears comes up, so... Definitely do not watch that. So, yeah, of the the four that won an Oscar on that day, uh, again, Toot Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, Bear Country, The Alaskan Eskimo, and The Living Desert, you can stream right now The Living Desert on Disney+. Plus. So that is your fun fact for March 25th, 1954. And finally, ending out the week on March 26th, 19- Oh, no, I was wrong about that date. I was really wrong about that date. On March 26, 2017, that's my fun fact that I chose for that, uh, and that is the Disneyland Paris 25th anniversary actually kicked off on that day. So it was an 18-month celebration. I was lucky enough to... uh, to still be at Disneyland Paris as part of the 25th anniversary celebration uh, because I went in June of June of 2018 so I just uh, snuck in there in the last couple months uh, way past the actual 25th anniversary celebration there but I, I still made it in there and it was obviously a very very big uh, celebration for them so uh, some of the things that ended up coming as part of it they had the star tours adventures continue got upgraded they took space mountain and transformed it into star wars hyperspace mountain like uh, disneyland except uh, a lot better they had the disney stars on parade uh, debut and that had the uh, that had the maleficent dragon like we have here in walt disney world at festival of fantasy i, I saw the parade it was actually really really awesome and yeah, and then uh, they had Disney Illuminations, which replaced the uh, the that's their new nighttime show that they had for it that I had a chance to see. And it was really, really spectacular. I loved it. And all I heard from people was that the show that even came before that was even better. So uh, if that one was better, I it's it's hard for me to believe because Disney Illuminations was pretty fantastic but yep that's the fun fact for march 26 2017 is that disneyland paris kicked off their 25th anniversary celebration so that's this week in disney history and if i'm doing this again next week well which i will be most likely then i will present you with new fun facts for for that week but that is going to do it for this week in disney history So I believe that will actually do it for this show now. And again, we will be back next week to talk about the Disneyland Hotel playing that archived episode from the Diz Unplugged Disneyland edition. But in the meantime, I just wanted to remind everyone out there to please keep sending Michael all those uh, fun messages 
that keep him occupied right now. And you can do that by sending him an email at michael at wdwinfo.com. On Twitter, you can reach out to him at mbowling121. On Facebook, Michael Bowling, the one with the Connecting with Walt logo at the top. On Instagram, Michael Bowling, the Diz. And then you can always connect with both of us on Twitter at Connecting Walt. And then for me, if you need to get in touch with me for some reason, you can get me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. And Instagram, I should say, not or. I think I did that last week as well. You can get at me on get at me and that sounds so weird you can get in contact with me on facebook twitter and instagram at teleclaster and then if you would like to listen to more shows on the history of walt disney his studio his imagineers and disneyland check out once again the disneyland pod- podcast archives for all of michael's disney history episodes at disunplug.com and then you can look for past episodes of technically that show and connecting with walt on Apple Podcasts, as well as uh, Stitcher and Spotify and anywhere you can get uh, podcasts out there. And on if you're going to do that, please make sure you subscribe to us and then leave us positive ratings and reviews. So once again, thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney and his brother Roy. Roy. <laughs>